Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room Podcast, our first of 2024. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the TDN, and I do the Down the Stretch show on Sirius XM Radio with Dave Johnson. My name is Randy Moss. I'm with NBC Sports. Hope everybody had a uh, happy holiday, and it's nice to be back in the starting gate again, Zoe. Absolutely. Happy New Year to you guys. Lucy's just giving it one of those, sticking her legs up in the air. I'm on dry January, so I'm drinking freshly <laughs> squeezed grapefruit juice out oh. of my XBTV glass right here. So cheers to you. Not that I usually drink while we're doing this show. Just want to throw There's no that vodka out. in there, Zoe? No, no, I promise you there's nothing. <laughs> nothing. Okay. All right. So guys, this week for my TDN uh, Week in Review, um, I took a look back at 2023 and also a look ahead at 2024. And boy, I got myself depressed writing about 2023. And, you know, I wanted to have sort of a panel discussion, both, you know, talking about the year that was and the year ahead. And when I looked at it and and went over, uh, you know, some of the big stories of the year, 2023 was a horse bleep year for thoroughbred horse race. And I can't say it any other way. Unfortunately, that's the case. Um, yeah, there were some nice stories. Jenna Antonucci winning the Belmont was a great story. You know, purses are up around the country, et cetera. But for the main reason that we had the very high profile breakdowns at Churchill Downs in Saratoga, which, uh, you know, the media, the mainstream media was all over. 60 Minutes winds up doing a piece that most people think was, you know, whether you agree or not, bashed horse racing. Um, it was a pretty bad year. Um, we're going to talk a little bit later to Patrick Cummings of the National Thoroughbred Alliance about this. He pointed out Handle through November is down $500 million on the year. It's set to have its worst uh, year other than COVID since 2011. So, uh, Randy, am I just being a per, uh, purveyor of doom and gloom, nattering nabog of nevitism or negativism, whatever Spiro Agnew said, or uh, am I on to something here? Well, I mean, as we'll talk about with uh, with Pat Cummings a little bit later, I mean, we all know that there are issues in this game that we love so much and, and they are not being addressed at the speed and at the level that they need to be addressed. We've talked about that ad nauseum uh, for a long time. I mean, there was some Jenna Andanucci, right? I mean, Javier Castellano, after going 0 for 15 in the Kentucky Derby at age 45, finally gets his first Derby win with Mage. Uh, HISA, the, uh, the anti-doping and the medication control part of HISA was finally implemented on May and it's now underway. And Hopefully, it's making uh, some difference in the sport. You can say this is bad news, but some people would say it's good news. Jason Service was brought to justice and, and sentenced uh, in July to a four-year prison term. So we've got the needle moving in that, in that regard as well. Uh, Cody's Wish, again, wins the Dirt Mile. But, of course, that's also mixed in with the bad news of what happened to Cody Dorman when he was uh, leaving Santa Anita. California to go back home to Kentucky. So yeah, I mean there was a lot of a lot of bad news in the sport, mainly horse safety related, but uh, some good news as well. Definitely some good news, Bill. I was about to go and find the vodka for a minute. After <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. Um, 
Yeah, it, highs and lows. To be honest, I can't remember right now a year where you could say, yay, horse racing, which is really sad because I think in the last few years, especially through COVID, thank goodness horse racing was allowed to keep going during COVID. But it, there really hasn't been a whole lot of cheering for horse racing. You mentioned, you know, all the highlights, Cody's Wish, Jenna Antonucci. I'll throw in uh, Gustavo Delgado Sr., after coming to this country nine years before and being a triple crown winning trainer, winning the Derby, that was nice to see that someone can just uproot, come over here and start afresh and win the Derby with a horse perhaps a lot of people didn't think was going to win. So that was one for me for sure, because he is really a good horseman and a good guy. But yeah, I mean, if you look back, it's time to look forward because the prognosis looking back on last year's just a little grim for me to be perfectly honest I mean hopefully we can move forward and and get things going but yeah I, I can honestly say and I've said this to a few people I'm glad I'm not 19 years old right coming into this industry and we're trying to bring people in but we need to offer them more to do I mean how can you say come to horse racing it's great and then we look back and talk about what happened in 2023. We have to have a better outlook. We need better PR. We need um, just, we need a lot more, God, I can't even get the words. There's just so much that needs to be done. And we say that every time and nothing gets done. It's frustrating. I want to ask, well, Randy, go ahead. I want to add a question for you. I was, I was just going to say that, you know, when we can tick off some of the highs of horse racing, I mean, in 2023, the, the, the thing that makes the lows stand out so much is that they're ex existential, right? They're the kind of lows that if they, if they aren't addressed in the appropriate way, potentially threaten the existence of the sport as a whole. The horse safety issue, the, the loss of gamblers, things like that. Uh, so that's really the part that makes the lows, I think, seem so low. And understandably so. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question. You, you kind of brought that up. Um, someone asked me the other day that if in my lifetime, horse racing will lose its quote unquote social license to operate. I said no. And I, I don't think it will. Um, horse racing, at least in the state of Kentucky, will be around 500 years from now. Um, that's never going away. But when you have the kind of negative coverage that we got out of Saratoga out of 60 minutes out of the Derby. We've got another one we're getting ready for next year, which I think is going to be brutal because the New York Times is behind it and this broken horses documentary. And we know how much the New York Times has been anti horse racing in its print coverage over the years. Um, did we, did that social license get eroded a little bit this year? I, yeah, I, I'd say it most definitely did, but I'll give you an example that gives you a, a little bit of hope. The big days still garner big crowds. We had opening day at Santa Anita, the highest handle we've had for a Tuesday, which is tough to do, open a racetrack on a Tuesday. There were thousands of people there. Yesterday, New Year's Day took everybody by surprise. Yes, it was dollar beer day. That brings a lot of people out. But it was absolutely packed at Santa Anita. Were they betting or were they drinking the dollar beers? The handle wasn't, wasn't that huge, but there were a lot of people. So there are people that will come, but you just need to find a way to educate them and make them stay coming. 
The thing about the social license aspect of it that I think is somewhat encouraging for thoroughbred racing is that I I trust that Joe Q public, the average sports fan, uh, they don't even have to be sports fans, just the average potential horse racing fan can see through some of the extremism and some of the you know, some of the uh, intense negativity that's directed toward the sport. And I think they'll understand that if horse racing is going in the right direction in terms of horse safety, let's say, and all this is being done, I think the people will largely understand that there is always going to be some level of risk involved with thoroughbred racing. There's some level of risk involved with horses in general anywhere, whether they're running around in the paddock in an open field or whatever. And, and just like football and concussions, I mean, I, th- I think people will understand that in thoroughbred racing, but they've got to be made, they've got to be convinced that the needle is moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's got to be communicated that the needle is moving in the right direction. But first, we have to get the needle moving in the right direction permanently, right? <laughs> you got to find the needle, Randy. you got to find the needle first. We don't know where it is. It's lost in that haystack somewhere. Let's go and find the needle before we can move it. We have. Yeah, to I think Zoe so. has a good point. I mean, um, I know that you. Uh, I'm going to give something away here, but you asked a question of Pat Cummings. Where do we start? Yeah. My God. Um, find the needle. And, uh, he gave he gave his best attempt to answer the question. I couldn't answer that question. Um, I mean, there's so many different things, but uh, uh, you know, there's things that need to be done, and hopefully, uh, as we're going to get to in the next segment, things will be done, and there'll be some changes coming in 2024. I do want to remind you that the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Keeneland. And yes, tis the season, guys. Keeneland has catalogued 1,401 horses plus dozens of supplemental entries for the 67th January Horses of All Ages sale. It'll cover four sessions from January the 8th, that's this coming Monday, Monday, through the 11th. The catalog features broodmares and broodmare prospects, newly turned yearlings, aka short yearlings, just because they're a little bit shorter, horses of racing age, stallions and stallion prospects. Book one will be held Monday and Tuesday with book two on Wednesday and Thursday. Each day's session begins at 10 a.m. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. At Keeneland, a horse will always be measured in hands. Hands that see, that sense, that speak. Hands that hold our sport to a higher standard. Not for our sake, but for theirs. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. Jackie's Warrior makes his move on the outside. Elite Power on the far outside. And Elite Power gets up to win the sprint. Elite Power is moving clear. And going to take the rear dirt sprint by a widening margin. Five, five, all of it. It's a video of Donner down. Nine, nine hundred. And nine hundred thousand. TDM Writers Room is brought to you by Elite Power. Got some questions for you. I'm going to answer them too. Who ran the fastest buyer speed figure among all 2023 Breeders' Cup winners? It was Elite Power with 111. Who 
posted the fastest Ragazin sheet figure of the year. It was Elite Power with a zero. Who was the highest ranked horse in North America in 2023? The two-time winning Breeders' Cup champs, Breeders' Cup sprint champion and a winner of nine of his last 10 races. That was Elite Power. That's right. It was Horse of the Year candidate, Elite Power. I think I've said his name enough now. The champion is standing his first year at Judmont Palm Farm for 50,000. And Randy, who is the fastest horse of the week? Is it Elite Power? <laughs> is it? Oh, there's name. We know Elite Power was the fastest horse at the Breeders' Cup this past year at Santa Anita, winning again in the Breeders' Cup Sprint. But what about the fastest horse, not just of the past week, but let's say the past month, because we've been off now for a couple of weeks. Every week, the fastest horse of the week is brought to you by the fast sires at Windstar Farm. And the highlight sire, the spotlight sire of, uh, of this podcast is a super fast horse in his own right. That would be Nashville who still holds the six furlong track record at Keeneland, even through two Breeders' Cup sprints being run there. Uh, Nashville ran that time of 107.89 that we've talked about so often on this podcast. And he's also off to a fast start at Stud. Nashville bred 204 mares in 2023 and has a 91% in full rate. He's the fastest son of champion sprinter and sire of sire Spikestown. And Nashville stands at Windstar for a fee of only $15,000. Now, fastest horse since the last time we were with you. I'm going to go back to the day after Christmas. December 26th, opening day, Santa Anita, Malibu Stakes, won by Speed Boat Beach over stablemate Hijazi. A Bob Baffert 1-2 in that seven furlong grade one at Santa Anita. And Speed Boat Beach on that day ran a buyer speed figure of 101. That is the top buyer speed figure that we've had since the last time that we were with you. Hijazi is now in four lifetime starts on dirt. He has had triple digit buyer speed figures in each of those starts and a 101 in the Malibu Stakes Day after Christmas. All right, guys. So in the first segment, we talked about all the problems. Let's roll up our sleeves now and fix them. Okay, easier said than done. But, you know, what are some things in 2024 that the sport can do to make things better and to, you know, we know there's no magic bullets. Um, not all the problems are going to go away. And I'll start with one. And this has been bugging me for a while. Why isn't stride safe at every racetrack in America? This technology, we had David Lambert on the podcast a while back. This technology has been around since 2011 and the sensors can detect problems with horses. And we know now that pre-existing conditions are more often than not what leads to breakdowns. They can tell a trainer that there is an, a problem that's brewing. And then the trainer obviously then is going to decide what to do with the horse, uh, you know, more times than not, I think, put them on the shelf and uh, alleviate that. I think that the two biggest problems horse racing is facing so far as its future are obviously the breakdowns and the animal welfare aspects and also the computer wagering. And, um, you know, which is just, I think, a huge threat to the future of this sport. And I think that's one of the reasons why Handle is down so much this year. But um, with, you know, the, the everyday player just getting their clock clean by these computer guys. So those are, you know, to me, the two areas where racing really needs to focus on. But I'll just I'll put one right out there. Come on, Churchill Downs. Come on, Naira. Come on, Santa Anita. Come on, Del Mar. Come on, Keeneland. Come on, you know, um, Paducah Downs. 
let's get stride safe onto these horses. What's the problem here, Randy? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, um, look, you pointed out a couple of things that uh, that probably, uh, you know, probably need to be changed that that definitely need to be changed. But as you also pointed out in the last segment, the list of things from transparency in, you know, uh, decisions being made in the steward stand around the country. We've just seen that pop up again in the last few weeks. But but when you talk about we haven't talked about this particular thing enough, I don't think. And it's not something that can be fixed in 2024. But I think it's something that we need to start paying a little more attention to than we are. When you talk about horse safety, right? I I, I think we've gone, I don't want to say as far as we can go, but we've gone a long way in the medication realm to cleaning up the medication problems that have contributed to horse deaths. I think we've we've taken big steps in veterinary oversight, okay, especially in big racing days like the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Cup. Could it be better the rest of the year? Yes. Um, but you talk about pre-existing conditions, okay? What causes pre-existing conditions? For decades now, for decades, we have been breeding thoroughbred racehorses with almost zero emphasis put on durability and soundness and all the emphasis put on speed. And the, the chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, that's that's what this is what you get when you have decades and uh, piled upon decades of that sort of mismatched emphasis. You get horses that are much bigger, much stronger, much faster, but inherently either not any more durable or less durable than the thoroughbreds that we've seen from yesteryear. And we can do all of the veterinary oversight and we can do all of, uh, you know, of the medication uh, adjustments and stuff. But un until we do something, and I don't know what that is, until we do something to address horses being sent to the breeding shed that are chronically unsound and shouldn't be producing, shouldn't be uh, spreading their genes to future generations, then we're going to continue to have major issues like this, in my opinion. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, the fast ones seem to be the most fragile. And, you know, we have proof of that with the tragic breakdowns at Saratoga last year. It's it's the quick ones, the super quick ones that, you know, have plenty of time off between races and then come back and, and run fast. And then they're at stud and they were brilliant. So people want to breed to them. I, I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. I mean, my, the, the poster child for this to me, and I've, I've, I've said this a lot. I may have even said it on the podcast. There, there was a horse in the, uh, in the early 2000s, one of the fastest, most talented horses that I've ever been around, really. And his name was Badge of Silver. He was an incredibly fast racehorse. He had two fractured cannon bones. He had chronic foot problems. He had a breathing issue that required an operation. He was a bleeder. Bobby Frankel was so afraid to run this horse when he had him that 
Badge of Silver ran on New Year's Day and didn't run again until the Breeders' Cup mile because Frankel was afraid to run him in a prep race. And the horse finished third in the Breeders' Cup mile after having not having run since New Year's Day. And what happened? He was retired to stud and breeders lined up to breed to him. It's, I mean, I don't know how you draw the line, where you draw the line to say that horse A or broodmare A, stallion A, uh, will be disqualified from, from going to the breeding shed where horse B would be okay. There would be obviously politics involved in that. I don't know how you make that determination, but you can't keep on down that road. It's like the clinical definition of insanity, right? You keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and expect a different result. So, Andy, let's go to my other bugaboo here, which is the computer-assisted wager. And again, we could be all over the map on this. And um, it's not going away. These guys are handling um, billions of dollars on the races, and the tracks are never going to turn them away. But I have heard from so many horse players that are so disgusted especially when you get the odds, you know, uh, not only are they, I think, getting less money back in their bets because the computer guys are dominating the pools. But, you know, we've all seen this awful scenario where the horse goes into the gate at four to one, opens up by three lengths, and all of a sudden he's five to two. And I've said horse racing has become the only game and gambling game in the universe where you can cash a bet and be pissed off when it's over. Um, I, again, I don't have the magic wand for this, but I did suggest that track should at least do what Naira has done. Naira has given the, the regular player a little bit of a break. They've effectively kept these guys out of the wind pools because they won't take their bets at the last second in the wind bets. And they have a pick five, uh, every day that they're not allowed to bet into. But, you know, that's just window dressing. I, I don't, you know, you, you said, and I agreed everything you said about the, the, uh, the sires and the stallions. But I think I would make the same point about this. This isn't talked about enough and horse racing isn't worried enough about this phenomenon. You know, handles down 5% this year and it's going to be down 5% next year and 5% the year after that. And we're going to be looking up one day and handles going to be half of what it was 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to use an analogy here that uh, I just used the other day with, with, uh, with somebody. Um, Everybody that knows me knows that I've got a uh, a thing for accuracy and timing, and I was on the GPS. Uh, oh yeah, you know you yeah, know all know. about that, right? Right. <laughs> but you you have racetrack managers all around the country right now. Uh, uh, let's say just you can almost pick any track that that actually still has GPS timed final times or GPS time fractions, and you've got a problem because you've got inaccurate data. Okay. Right. But yet managers at all these racetracks don't seem to care. What they really care about is the chicklets that are out of order as the horses run around the racetrack. Give me a break. At that point, the bets have already been placed. You're not taking money out of somebody's pocket. If a chicklet shows a horse that should be third, shows him first. I mean, where are the, it's kind of misplaced priorities here. And to me, it's a little bit the same thing with the CAW, okay? Uh, Yes, it, it is. It looks bad and it's frustrating when horses leave the starting gate and then their odds plummet uh, by the time the official odds actually go up on the tote board. But the big that's window that, to me, that's window dressing. That's just like skimming the surface. To me, the major problem there is that the CAWs are taking money out of the pockets of the regular day to day horse players because they are given access that 
ordinary horse players aren't allowed. They're allowed to bet directly into the pools through their computer hookups, and no one else is allowed to do that. We've got to find a way to level the playing field here so that in a in paramutual wagering, when it's me against you against you, you're not giving somebody a major advantage that's not available to anybody else. Yeah, and, and they're getting all the rebates too, which is huge as well. So, And you can't blame some of the tracks for taking their money because they're betting a lot of money. So they're going to want to take that, but they have to shut them down at some point. And it, and why can't it be five minutes to post at every track across the country? Just do a ruling. And if they want to play, they can play. Yeah. Nobody's stopping you. Just it, it, it's, it's, it's like treating the symptoms of a disease and not treating actually what caused, you know, the underlying problem with the disease, right? The, the symptom is right. the big odds drop once the horses leave the starting gate, right? That's the, it's frustrating because you see it. But the underlying part of it to me is the diseased part that needs to be uh, addressed. The TD Riders are brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. While we've been on hiatus here in our little podcast, the PA Breds have still been making news, of course. Saturday, Carmelita won her third stakes of 2023 in a gin talking at Laurel. She's a two-year-old daughter of Maximus Mischief, and she's now won two in a row. And we talked a lot about those that big day at Parks on December 27th. Well, Aoife's Magic ran her record to a perfect four for four with a win in the $200,000 misbehavior stakes. And then in the wait for it stakes for Colts that same night, it was Uncle Heavy who avenged his only loss in the Pennsylvania nursery stakes by coming back with the win there. And a reminder, the 2024 PHBA Stallion season gets underway Jan 15. Visit thoroughlybred.com for more information. PA Bread, I think we've built a, a brand at this point. The state of Pennsylvania has the best breeders program in the entire United States. Angel of Empire wins the Arkansas Derby and wins it clear. Caravelle in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. Pennsylvania and the PHBA have the best state-bred program in the country, bar none. The best Breeders' Awards and Stallion Awards in the country. Every sire hopes to have a son to follow in his footsteps. An impressive debut. For Munnings, that son is Jack Christopher. Jack Christopher to win the champagne. Unbeaten grade one winner at two. Dual grade one winner at three. And he is pouring it on here. It is Jack Christopher winning the grade one H. Allen Jerkins Memorial. Jack Christopher. I know you guys have been waiting for this. It is now time for the Coolmore Stallion of the Week. Who is it this week? Here's a hint. He is Munning's best son, and he is a beast, according to Liz Crow, who purchased him as a yearling. Never mind Liz Crow. Sorry, Liz. I love you, but I can attest that I saw this horse before he ever ran, and he was about as beautiful mover as you could ever see. You can go to XBTV and take a look at one of his works before he ever ran. Jack Christopher was five for five around one turn, including three grade one wins 
and a win in the Woody Stevens by 10, the Allen Jerkins by a length and three quarters, and the Champagne by two and three quarter lengths. All that after his aforementioned eight plus TBN rising star debut at Saratoga. Go back and take a look at that work before he ever ran. He was absolutely beautiful. Liz Crow actually said that Chad Brown called her right after a work at Saratoga and said, this horse is a real runner. Jack Christopher is Munning's best son. He'll have his first foals in 2024 and stands at Coolmore for a mere 40,000. Get on him while you can, guys. Well, it's time now for First Things First. After a very successful opening day on Boxing Day, December 26th, we came back for New Year's Day and there were people aplenty. We even celebrated New Year's on set. And trust me, guys, don't drink and work at the same time. I couldn't even remember what race we were on. We also did wish Lafitte Pinkai a very happy 77th birthday. That's a hell of a cake. Yeah. Yes, very nice. I'm pretty sure it tastes very good, too. Oh, you're allowed to eat it now. Yeah, I can. <laughs> Surrounded by all of his Hall of Fame jockeys and Lafitte, just a couple of questions for you. Happy birthday, for one. We're just delighted to have you here. And how about this cake? You can eat it now. How much of this cake are you going to eat? Uh, I have a piece. I won't have a lot, but I have a piece. I still wash my way pretty good. What, what are we weighing in at right now? Uh, about 120, 26, 27, 28. And at 77 years old, you still work out. Did you, did you work out this morning? No, I didn't. Uh, I took the day off today, but I played golf yesterday and I played the 18 holes and I tried 85, so I'm very happy about it. Wow. Do you ever watch these guys racing and think, just yeah. one more time, just one more time? Oh, yes, I do. And I, uh, I see the quality of riders that they have now. They have a lot of good riders now, and I'm glad to see that. There's a lot of competition, and uh, they all want to be number one, so it's tough. How glad are you to be still here at Santa Anita, still celebrating your birthday at the Great Race Place? Well, I enjoy it a lot every time I come. I have a good time. I see friends that I haven't seen in a while. And uh, the only problem is I'm a, the worst handicapper in the world. And I always come and lose my money. Well, that's OK. I'll join you there, Lafitte. Let's join Lafitte in wishing him a very, very happy birthday. Lovely to see you here. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. And now our resident Brit is going to have to explain Boxing Day. <laughs> <laughs> the day after Christmas. The best thing you can unwrap is opening day at Santa Anita. And do want to remind you that we will open up once more on Friday. Free parking, $3, $2 beers, I think, and $3 margaritas. And it's free to get in. So come on out to Santa Anita. TD and Writer's Room is brought to you by The Green Group. We're not talking environment here. We're talking a tax accounting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and designed to save you taxes. And we welcome in now the Green Group Guest of the Week. It's Pat Cummings. He is the executive director of the National Thoroughbred Alliance, the group that Mike Rapoli put together. 
His announcement made came in October, late October, and he was named Patrick to be the head man as executive director. National Thoroughbred Alliance, what's it all about? I think Mike Rapoli wants to shake things up and wants to move forward and get some changes done in the industry. And he hired Pat to be his right-hand man. Pat, welcome. And first of all, since October 26, what has happened? Where are you? Have you hired anybody? Bring us up to speed on what's going on with the uh, NTA. Well, thanks for having me, Bill, and, and great to be back with you again. It is a work in progress, as I think uh, a lot of people can imagine. The, the last two months have really been spent on a, a pretty wide-ranging engagement tour. Um, the phone, I, I guess I'm learning this, and, and this this may be the case for just about all of the uh, business enterprises that Mike Rapoli is involved in, but the phone never kind of stops ringing, right? It, it, it just... Uh, he, he is a natural born disruptor and, uh, that, that is a, a good thing, but a, anyone in, in the aura, uh, of, of Micropoli, I think, uh, kind of gets, gets consumed into this, um, I'm not going to say tornadic, but it's, you know, it's a cyclone of activity, uh, that involves Mike and his businesses and his offices and the people associated with him and other people who just want to be associated with him. Um, and, and we didn't know each other before uh, October, um, but we've certainly gotten to know each other quite well in the, in the last uh, two months or so. And it is um, I say it's a work in progress because because truly it is. Um, we, we did not get to this sort of general position in our sport overnight. So uh, we're, we're definitely taking the time to be very uh, thoughtful about how the organization comes together. So it's it's. It is naturally light on detail to begin with, uh, but it is, you know, we're focusing on some very big picture items at present. And uh, I, I think we're going to continue to hear more and more about it. But, you know, for as much as people might not necessarily like Mike's style and the way he approaches certain things, he focuses on results. And it is very hard to argue with his professional record outside of racing. It's kind of hard to argue with his record inside racing, too, to be fair. But in this new uh, enterprise, it, it is what um, we're in essentially a, a, an engagement period. Um, we are we are finding our way and, and talking to a lot of people about the, the big issues in the sport. Uh, one of the things we found and I think a lot of people would agree with this, is if, if you started having a conversation with people in many different streams of the sport, um, the, the racing space, aftercare, um, the wagering side, um, when you're talking about kind of the big issues in racing, most people are going to agree about many of those things. And we've had some tremendous calls in the first couple months with, with different organizations, leaders, individuals, uh, in, in every space of the business. And what we have found is that there's a tremendous amount of commonality. Uh, our, our interests in, in improving the sport are, are shared. But when you start to poke into areas that directly impact certain individuals, the, the pushback starts to come. And it's like, well, I agree on 90% over here, but on this 10%, which directly affects me, maybe I'm not so interested in changing all of a sudden, or maybe I don't want to go about rethinking the way in which my business generates revenue or, or, or my members are, are impacted one way or another. So we are finding that, uh, that there's a lot of openness to change, 
But there's a lot of of potentially, you know, door closing that goes on when you suggest that change might need to affect everybody in some way, shape or form. And it's it's been a, a pretty revelatory two month two month process so, so far. Yeah. And what you're describing is what we've talked about on this podcast before a lot of times. And that is there seems to be an overall attitude in the thoroughbred industry of um, wanting to protect your own fiefdom and not being not thinking about what might be good for the sport as a whole if it's not necessarily good for your particular enterprise. And, and that's done in so many so many initiatives over the over over the decades yeah. in thoroughbred racing. So so how do you form alliances in the National Thoroughbred Alliance? Well, Randy, I mean it, it is it is kind of I think what we're what we're trying to, to figure out. So you know the the uh, the bricks haven't been laid yet, right? I think we're we're essentially prepping the foundation of an organization more so than we are building the actual structure at this point. That, that, that remains a work in progress. But I think what, what we could identify is that there are probably eight key areas where we see a future alliance needing to operate. And the, the one thing that is not a part of this area, not an area unto it, uh, itself, is, is horse ownership and horse owners. And the reason we say that is because horse ownership touches so many different parts of the business, right? If you have a particularly good horse, you may end up uh, touching the breeding side of the business. If you have a productive mare, you're, you may end up in the breeding side. You may go to the sales. You may, uh, you're obviously going to be involved in racing. You may have to be involved in the aftercare space. There's a lot of different um, uh, areas in which, in which owners are going to, to necessarily be involved. But the way we see it, racing, aftercare, education, sales, wagering, PR marketing, breeding, and then horseman support, a rather generic catch-all uh, about the way in which we help not just owners and trainers individually, but their staffs and, and how they work and operate within our business. If, if we, we have aligned that there are these eight key areas that all need uh, an element of focus, and, and we have identified some opportunity areas within each of them, right? So, so for example, I mean, where in our sport is it being directly worked on that field size has to grow, right? If we look at the racing bucket and say, we want to grow field size in American horse racing, you could go to the Jockey Club's website and take a look at their statistics that they have meticulously maintained over the years, but you're not going to find a path or, or a program or a strategy on individually how to increase field sizes, right? The racing operators themselves uh, have worked on this more individually than they have collectively. And I think we're all in agreement that, uh, you know, that there's, there's a lot of kind of individual promotion and focus in this business, and there hasn't been a very collective focus in this business. Some issues cross some of these buckets, right? The, you know, for as much as I, I've heard about um, the uh, the farce uh, of the decision to demote Brick Ambush from that race at Aqueduct, uh, I don't think there was enough talk about the fact that you know over a million dollars in bets was changed as a result of it, not just the three hundred thousand uh, dollars to the winning owner. Um, so, so arguably, the betters were the most impacted, 
in that particular incident. And you have a, this, this amalgamation of one singular incident that drew a tremendous amount of focus that involved a commission, the breed registry, which just happens to have a steward in the stand, the track operator itself, individual decision-making, um, a, a long-time negligence to sort of the building the infrastructure of the sport, of being more transparent. In this one in- incident, you have this, um, you know, this essentially a stew of, of uh, all of, long t- of racing's long-term issues kind of laid bare in front of us and an unsatisfactory outcome for pretty much everybody involved. And that's why I think those sorts of things become uh, lightning rods for the entire sport to 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 say, look, we've got to change this. Uh, we have to organize it better. We have to to organize ourselves better. Um, I'm not saying though we have the plan to do it yet. I'm saying we're working on the plan to do that, and uh, that is going to be a work in progress. And I can, you know, speaking for Mike, in this sense, he wants to hear from more people. He wants to hear from more farm owners. Uh, from from those who were involved in the stallion business, the sales business. There was a, a great uh, letter from Boyd Browning at Fasic Tipton to TDN uh, just uh, the other week um, about wanting to get more people involved. I mean, that that was that was a, a, a good call to action. I think there's been a lot of calls to action in just the past couple of weeks, seemingly in the in the aftermath of Mike really trying to stir the pot. And, and I think he has succeeded in doing that. Uh, in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, like I said, work in progress, a um, lot of examples of where our sport has failed along the way. Um, but the solutions aren't coming easy. And, and we need more people to kind of step forward and say, I, I really want to make this better, too. It's not just going to be Mike. Pat Cummings for office. Have you thought about running for office, Pat? I mean, you'd be a good (laughs) presidential candidate, I think. But joking aside, I mean, I can stir a pot, but my food's still going to taste like crap. So, and I mean, at the end of the day, Micropoli is going to stir the pot, but how do you move forward? You mentioned the 10% of people that are hesitant when it comes to them. It's just like, in the rash of breakdowns that we had in Southern California, it was like, oh, yeah, that's your problem, not ours. And I'm like, whoa, 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 East Coast, it's, it'll come your way eventually. And it did. So how do you get people to stick together? How do you manage to put everyone together? Because we saw Boyd Browning's letter and the light up horse racing that's coming our way. And one thing that I've seen in thoroughbred racing is people not being able to work together. All of the aftercare that we have in this country, more often than not, you have people that are doing, trying to do the right thing, fighting with each other and squabbling and not working together. How's Mike Rapoli's NTA going to work with the likes of Light Up Horse Racing and some other ones that might pop up? Does he want to be the boss or does he want to merge and work with everyone? Well, Mike, Mike certainly does like being the boss, Zoe. I don't think there's any, <laughs> I don't think there's any arguing about that, uh, in, in both his, uh, his public persona and certainly, uh, the, the private success that he has had as a, as an entrepreneur. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I've said this a couple times before. Um, a lot of people in our sport have to endure a lot of losing on a regular basis. And it does maybe get lost in the shuffle a little bit, right? If you're, if you're working with, say, uh, one professional sports team, unless you're maybe the Detroit Pistons over the last two months, 
you're going to have a little more winning and you know losing, and, and it's going to be interspersed. But you know, in, in a two teams uh, game, there's one winner and there's one loser. Uh, in horse racing, that's not necessarily always the case. I, I you know, Nick Zito, Mike, Mike talked about recently giving a a, a, a good Uncle Mo. Um, I think it was a two-year-old or, or maybe just, just newly turned three-year-old to, to Nick Zito. And Nick was talking about how he had lost roughly, I think, 115 races in a row. And for someone of, of Nick's uh, past status as a trainer, I mean, that, that's really difficult to endure. But a lot of our owners and trainers endure far more losing than they do winning. And what I think has happened um, across our sport for a long period of time is that uh, – we, we have uh, essentially kind of focused um, a little too much on winning uh, or trying to gain outside of the rails uh, where winning and losing isn't always as clear. We try and make our points hurt a little bit more. We get very pointed. Um, where, where a win and a loss isn't as clear outside of the rails, you just fight. Um and, and not enough of the focus has been on what's happening just inside of the rails. And I think that is a um, it, it's something that Mike has, has said, you know, I, I want to keep the competition as, as much inside of the rails as I can. But he is here to shake things up and bringing me on board. I was I was inspired by his vision and his interest because I truly do believe and this is something I've shared on the TDN podcast in my past visits through Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, that my greatest source of optimism is that I feel in many respects we're not really trying as hard as we should. Um, so I don't think these problems aren't solvable. Uh, I know Mike thinks they're solvable, too. They're fixable. The question is, do we have the people right now in place to do the fixing? Uh, is that happening? Is that really evolving the way it should? And I think a lot of people in the sport uh, if they were texting each other, if those texts became public, I think the answer would very clearly tilt in the side of, no, we haven't been doing the right things. We haven't been evolving in the right way. We haven't been embracing change where we need to. There's a lot of opinions. We're all on those text threads where we all have those conversations with, with friends and people we've been around the sport uh, with a very long time of tremendous frustration. Uh, that's understandable. Uh but but it does not have to be our our sort of daily, um, you know, we, we don't have to sit here and essentially be indicted daily, even though when you do read a lot of the stories, people talk about wanting more positive stories. I'd love to see more positive stories, provided the news that was coming out wasn't itself so negative just by its basic kind of facts. You know, there is a lot of negativity. There, there have been a lot of negative trends in our business. The economic indicators for racing are going to come out this week, maybe by the time this podcast is even published. And we're likely to see another year of, of handle down 5% or so, right? So uh, it, it is an ongoing effort. And I think we really need to see some, some, some not just a, an actual change in, in how we, we go about managing our sport, but, but in how we um, think about change and, and finding ways to be more open to it. Uh, Pat, if you're a racing regulator, if you're a racetrack owner, if you're HISA, you have authority, you have rules, you have uh, things in place where you can get things done. I think that the question that most people have about this is, you know, 
that without the National Thoroughbred Alliance really having any authority, how do you get things done, you know, other than just hoping for the best? Um, how do you cross that hurdle? Well, I didn't have any authority with Thoroughbred Idea Foundation either, Bill, but we inspired folks, we educated, we advocated, and and we did help uh, get some things done. And, and, and even some of those things that we did uh, help facilitate getting done, they haven't always gone smoothly either. Um, you know, so so even when you do have that authority, it doesn't mean it's going to go off smoothly. Uh, I think, as we've seen with with HISA, there's certainly been some things that have worked better than others in these first months. Um, but, you know, when we set out uh, five years ago and said, let's write a paper about breakage. Uh, so, oh, yeah, that's cute and it's nice and it's a problem and we need to fix it. Well, yeah. So let's put a plan together to, to, to try and work on that. And we did. We had to get our law changed here in Kentucky. We, we tried to work with some other states. We realized you know, some of those doors weren't open. We weren't able to work in, in, in New York, for example, on that particular topic. But maybe New York will focus on it in 2024. They've given some indications that there's a chance to do that. And if if we saw New York uh, adopt penny breakage in 2024, that'd be a huge win that I never saw coming, say, in the last three or four years. Um, we've seen states uh, adopt the uh, or at least Oklahoma adopt the category one interference standard. And then a couple days uh, or a couple of minutes, rather, before a uh, presentation on the topic at the Arizona Symposium, the Jockey Guild comes out and says, no, you know, uh, we need to stay with category two. And I'm like, where were you guys 16 months ago or, or at any point in the last 16 months when this has gone off without controversy uh, a, a, across hundreds of thoroughbred races in, in, in one particular state? Um you don't need power to actually help effect change. And you know, we don't have that right now in this organization. Like I said, the foundation is merely being laid. The bricks aren't being being built um, or, or, or they're not elevating at this point. We'll get there. Um, and I don't think the roadmap is very clear right now. And if that makes people feel uncomfortable, welcome to American Horse Racing in 2024. Right. This is where we've been. Uh, we, we, we would all like it to be better. Uh, but, you know, I didn't have that luxury of, of having the power to just make some unilateral changes in my past five years of work. But we set out, we studied topics. We had a lot of engagement that no one saw uh, behind the scenes. I can assure you that's happening now uh, between me and Mike and, and the calls that we're having with a lot of different entities across the sport. Um, there, there are a lot of discussions that, if it did show up in print, would fascinate readers. I guarantee you of that. Um, it, it, you know, industry personnel would love to know uh, some of the conversations that, that are being had. But we're not there yet to kind of take that next step and to go into that. So it's coming. Um, the, the work is there. But this is the state of the sport. And, and we need to find a way to move forward together because I sit here in Lexington, Kentucky, surrounded by, you know, tremendous horse farms and beautiful properties and new foals will be hitting the ground here in a week or so. And we, we have something very tangible. Uh, we need to protect it. We need to try and build it. And we need to make what we do have as good as we possibly can. I think a lot of people would agree that that hasn't really been the case for a long period of time. And we'd all like to see it change. I mean, we do have something tangible. I mean, the four of us have this intense love for thoroughbred racing and for good reason, right? 
But by the same token, the four of us could sit together in the same room and we could come up with a pretty lengthy list of things that need to be changed in thoroughbred racing. So as you're laying this foundation, right, as you're putting these bricks down, where do you start? I mean, how do you know where to where to begin? I assume you want to start with a victory and then maybe kind of get the momentum rolling and all that. But how do you know where to begin with all this? Having the conversation is the starting point, Randy, right? It, it is it is leading people into some of those uncomfortable Zooms and, and calls that we've had um, where, you know, and I've seen I've seen Mike do it where where he has this tremendous way of getting people to agree and, and to have that conversation about what is uh, achievable and what we could possibly do and how we could get something done. And then when he shifts the topic to how do we change that particular area where you're involved, the clam up happens, right? <laughs> the, the, the door starts to shut. And I have sat there uncomfortably, uh, but it's, it's actually kind of a joy to watch because those uncomfortable conversations need to happen. Uh, and, and we need to start finding a way we, we need to, 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 you know, for example, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, is there, is there a correct number for a, a cap on the number of mayors a stallion covers in a particular year? Is it 250? I think 95, 98% of participants in the industry might say 250 is probably the right number. So are we really being held back by the 2%? Is it 220? Is it 200? Is it 190? A, a lot of people, I think, realized it probably wasn't 140, right? Um, but then you start, you know, so increase that number and you might get a, a varying degree of acceptance or rejection on that idea. You know, start having that dialogue and pushing people into understanding uh, what it is we may need to be doing and how we may need to be changing. Again, it's not some sort of edict. We, we, we can come from on high and say, uh, boom, we're changing this today, tomorrow. Uh, it, it's never going to work like that. Uh, we, we know we don't have that authority today. Um, but, but nothing is off the table for the future. Uh, as I said at the beginning, Mike is a disruptor through and through. Um, he is happy to continue disrupting. He loves the sport just as much as the four of us do and, and, and thousands of other people across the country and, and even more across the world. Um, and, and I think we all want to see uh, the sport and survive and, and eventually on these shores thrive again. But how it thrives in, say, two or three years uh, may be very different uh, than, than what some people have in their mind today, right? We can't just miracle another 30,000 new falls, right? So, so how do we work with the existing entities to, to find a way to, uh, to, to, to build that? Um, how do we work with existing operators? You know, there's a lot of things that could be done amongst existing participants in the sport today that could have really positive effects for the future longevity of the sport. Right. I think one of those that we've seen using that example, again, the, the aqueduct example is just transparency. Just be more transparent. And I think we saw from the New York State Gaming Commission that even when they tried to be transparent, they made mistakes, uh, which just, you know, boggles the mind that, that you could could be trying to fix or explain a situation several days after the incident took place. And you still got it wrong. You know, what, what a what a. 
a sad but but telling example of kind of the state of of how the sport has been adjudicated and and uh, and regulated. That should be low hanging fruit. There's a lot of it, right? There is so much of it. It should be fall. It's falling on the ground all over us, and we have not picked it up. I want to thank Patrick Cummings, the executive director of the newly formed National Thoroughbred Alliance. A lot of work ahead of you, Patrick. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Good luck. As the Green Group guest of the week one, Pat Cummings will receive a free one-hour tax consultation with Lynn Green et al. at the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group can help your pocketbook when it comes to the tax man, you can go to www.greenco.com. But first, this message from the Green Group. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breds. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. Let's talk a little Kentucky right now. The Kentucky Thoroughbred Breeders Incentive Fund contributed $17.4 million to eligible breeders in 2022. In 2021, $15.9 million. Since it began in 2006, the KBIF has distributed more than $200 million to Kentucky breeders. And we all know already, purse money is soaring in Kentucky. Kentucky has the fullest fields in the country. As quality racing every month of the year, there is clearly no better time to race and to breed in the bluegrass state. Kentucky breads, breed them, raise them, race them. We all win. Well, quite a year for the females on the racetrack. Jenna Antonucci wins the Belmont Stakes. We wanna congratulate Linda Rice, who was our last guest of 2023 on the TDN Writers Room podcast. She set a record for most winners on a year in New York. And Brittany Russell, a rising star in this sport, was a leading trainer on the year at the Maryland Jockey Club tracks, a first for her and a first for a female in uh, the state of Maryland. Okay, Eclipse Talk, guys. Um, we all in agreement. Cody's wish is horse of the year. Yeah. Yes, okay, I got three yeses, okay, all right. You know, usually you get these categories and, and there's there's not a lot of debate. So I don't want to go over each and every category, but I picked out a couple where I think there is going to be, uh, you know, there's no slam dunk. And I'll start with the Philly and Mayor turf. 
And I violated my own rule. I hate voting for these European horses that come in for one race. But I did it here for Inspiral, who, of course, won the Breeders' Cup Philly Mayor Turf, because I just didn't see anybody else that really, you know, jumped off the page or had the kind of credentials um, that, uh, you know, would eclipse what she accomplished. I thought Modge was very interesting, having won a grade one and then losing by a dirty nose in the Breeders' Cup mile. Um, you got Fev Rover won two graded stakes races during the year. In Italian won two graded stakes races. It really finished up the year on a negative note. Randy, did I get it right with Inspiral? I think so. You're right. You're talking about, okay, Fev Rover and in Italian were the only two females that won two grade one stakes right. races. But then Fev Rover runs 11th, next to last in the Philly Mare Turf. In Italian finishes her year with three consecutive losses, including a fifth in the Philly Mare Turf. Really, I think it comes down to Inspiral and Maj. Right. And it just depends on, like, as you said, you violated your own rule. I kind of have my own rule, too, that I try to go by, and that is that that if a horse comes over from Europe, they have to run at least twice in this country before I'm going to vote for them for an Eclipse Award. But I violated it here. I had to. Uh, as much as I like Maj, and I thought she ran an unbelievable race, finishing a nose behind Master of Seas, visually in spiral uh, was just amazing coming from as far back as she did to win the Philly and Mare Turf. And so for the same reasons as you, Bill, I, I took in spiral and sort of um, went against my own Eclipse voting framework. And I'm with you guys. I wish we had a better packet to say they have to run three times because otherwise, what do you do? You you don't vote for Inspiral, but you're rewarding mediocrity. Right. She was the best of them. So I hate to do it, but I went Inspiral and you're wrong. There were two grade one winners on the grass and a set. Just That's right. Yeah. But restricted to three-year-olds though. Okay. She's a three-year-old. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So, and that's why this thing sometimes sucks because <laughs> you don't you don't have the latest ones. Like you have to be privy and not go by what they send you. So yes, Anaset is a dual Grade One winner. So Thank you. I, just I food for that. thought. I actually am a Sovereign Award uh, voter as well. I was added to the list this year. That's the Canadian. Woo! version of Clips Awards, and their rule is if a horse did not run three times in Canada during the calendar year, they're not eligible. And that's how it should be. Yeah. But then you're- If if they want to put that rule in, I'm fine with it, but without the rule, where where do you go? Yeah, you're uh, still rewarding mediocrity. Yeah. Okay, Um, I've got one for you. It's a tough call. All right, how about the Philly and Mayor Sprint? Um, Is Goodnight Olive completely obvious? Uh, she wins the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mayor Sprint. But Randy, um, Echo Zulu uh, didn't quite have the body of work that, that she did. But she was, to make a case, she was the fastest horse to run during the year. I mean, if you are uh, just want to go on buyer numbers, um, I mean, she soars towers over this field. But I went with Goodnight Olive. Not me. No, I, I'm, I'm Echo Zulu all the way. I mean, uh I I can't be convinced that Echo Zulu could have held off elite power if she had stayed sound and run against males in the Breeders' Cup sprint, as Steve Asmussen was uh, intending, I think. But I also am not convinced that elite power could have run her down. Uh, Look, Echo Zulu worked with Gunite quite a few times, and, and Gunite was absolutely no match for Echo Zulu in terms of speed. 
Uh, so when you look at elite power versus, you know, Echo Zulu is the fastest female racehorse in the country. And yes, her career was abbreviated because of her of her unfortunate injury. But they ran against each other one time. Good night, Olive and Echo Zulu. And Echo Zulu scored a resounding victory in which Goodnight Olive ran the best race of her career based on all the various speed figures. So I'm not going to penalize Echo Zulu for what happened to her. Uh, the way she handled Goodnight Olive in their only matchup was good enough for me. I, I actually put Goodnight Olive on top. Echo Zulu underneath. Okay. I haven't sent in yet. Man, he made a convincing case. I might want my ballot back. <laughs> All right, one more, one more up to the mark male turf. I think so because of his body of work. But um, and again, the, the people that don't believe like Randy and I do that the horse needs to run a couple of times in the U.S. to to really merit serious consideration for an Eclipse Award. But August Rodin, I know I know people are voting for him as well. I mean, he was wonderful. He was brilliant, but up to the mark. Won three Grade Ones was, you know, uh, ran well in the Breeders' Cup uh, turf. And uh, August Rodin, the one race in, in uh, the U.S., and I don't think he should get any credit for what he did in Europe. But uh, where'd you go there, Randy? Uh, I went up to the mark because here, I mean, like we can – it's a little easier to stay with our with our convictions right. about how often a horse should run in the United States to be an Eclipse Award winner. And the reason why it's easier, I think, in this case – is because only three quarters of a length separated the two horses at the finish. And August Rodin, you can argue, one, because of his trip, because he got through along the inside and up to the mark had more of an overland route. And I, I can very easily look at that and say uh, that if the roles were reversed or even if they had the same trip, that up to the mark would have beaten August Rodin. Uh, maybe I'm wrong because August Rodin had some early trouble in the race, uh, but it's easier for me in this case I think up to the mark has more credentials than any of the female turf horses underneath in spiral who had a more American form up to the mark for me as well. Trainer, anyone give a nod to Bill Mott on here? Yeah, I voted for him three on top for that three champions, three breeders cup winners. Um, he, his winning percentage was fairly low. I think it was only 15% on the year, but what he accomplished on Breeders' Cup Day and to train three Eclipse Award winners, uh, he'll have just FYI, Cody's Wish, and Elite Power. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty pretty safe call. Agreed. Randy? Agreed. Okay. Agreed. All right. Well, there, we're in agreement, except Randy took us to school on Echo Zulu, uh, made some absolutely some good points. So those are some of our thoughts on the Eclipse Awards. I think they'll be announced uh Early on in January, we'll find out exactly who all the winners are. And it'll be interesting to see if Goodnight Olive wins over Echo Zulu. And uh, I think we're in agreement on just about everything else, guys. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. And this work is especially for Randy, who is the number one fan of Adair Manor. She's back on the work tab, Randy. And for hey. the very first time, yay, since finishing seventh in the Breeders' Cup distaff, she worked four, fur four furlongs in 49 Randy could probably read this off better than me. Before that race, Adair Manor had reeled off six straight wins, five of them carrying Randy Moss, all of them graded stakes, including the grade one Clement Hirsch stakes. Trainer Bob Baffert said he has not yet picked out a race for Adair Manor's 2024 return. He is waiting on a phone call from Randy Moss. We'll be right back <laughs> after this message from XBTV. Where do you think she's going to go, Randy? 
She's staying in training. That's the big news. Right. That's great. Right. She'll run in the apple blossom. I can promise you that. All right. Good. Good to know. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. As we all know, joining a West Point Thoroughbred can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie because of these kinds of results. West Point Thoroughbred closed out the year with a pair of impressive two-year-old winners, both by Constitution. Okay, and you talk about something to look forward to in 2024. First, the Sugar Bowl Stakes at the Fairgrounds. That's December 23rd, a sprint. Legalize won it, drawing away at the end by two and three quarters lengths. Legalize is now two for three lifetime. And then December 30th, Gulfstream Park, first race on that Saturday card. Todd Pletcher trained Born Noble, made his career debut, was green as grass coming through the lane, and yet won that seven furlong race by more than five lengths. Buyer speed figure 92. Something to really look forward to for Barn Noble down in Florida. He was a $725,000 September yearling at Keeneland, and you know they have high hopes for Born Noble. Interested in joining a West Point partnership to, vis- uh, to learn more, visit westpointtb, as in thoroughbred.com. That's a wrap on our first show of 2024. I want to thank my partners, Randy Moss and Zoe Cadman, our Green Group Guest of the Week, Pat Cummings, our producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, and our editors, Aaliyah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson. And how's Lucy doing back there, Randy? Hey, she is chill as ever. She's celebrating a new year. She looks excited, doesn't she? Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Cheers. Cheers.